0: So this month is Missions Month, and if you weren't here last week, you might not know that that's a big deal. We took a few moments last week to highlight global missions, because international church planning and evangelism is central to the mission and purpose of Redeemer Church. Last week, in a, se- in a series of extraordinarily annoying repeat-after-mes, we read the mission statement of Redeemer Together, which very clearly states that we exist for two reasons to magnify the glory of God and to declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. That's who we are and that's what we do. We also spent a moment highlighting that this gospel mission isn't merely a corporate responsibility. Yes, we should shout the gospel to our neighbors and the nations as a church. Yes, we should send our missionaries and support missionaries and visit missionaries as a church. But this responsibility is something each of us carry individually. You cannot see God as He is without shouting about who He is. Our calling comes with a calling. So, just to be very clear, let me repeat... You were not saved into the family of God to patiently await your redemption. You were not a beneficiary of the great trade. You did not wear the righteousness of Christ in order to wait it out until the dawn of the new kingdom. When God rescues sons and daughters, his embrace comes with a commission. You have been commissioned as an ambassador. We, the reconciled, are ministers of reconciliation. You can't have one without the other. We have been given the message of reconciliation and have been sent out to broadcast that message to the nations. Our mission is twofold, to search the depths of the character and the work of God and to shout His worth to our neighbors and the nations. We are ambassadors to the nations, and as such, we ought to understand who they are where they've been and where they're going. So last week, we began to tell the story of the nations. And we started at the very beginning, all the way back to Babel, the origin story of the nations. We discovered that the nations were scattered because they refused to bear the image of God. They wanted to be like God without having to be like God. They refused to fill and to subdue and to order, in order to broadcast the character of our good creator. Instead, they defaced the image of God, and chose to make a name for themselves. So God stepped in, and from one people were made many peoples. From one language was made many languages, and the nations of the earth grew apart in isolation, as a consequence of their tragic rebellion. But planted within their consequence was a seed of great hope, As they scattered each nation to its own corner of the earth, they caught glimpses of God's nature, His might here in the waves, His power in the raging desert storm, His provision in the sweet spring rains. And these glimpses pointed the weary and the poor and the burdened to a better day. So last week we made a huge leap. We spoke at length about the beginning of the nations that dark day when the tongues of men were broken and the mercy of God saved the world from wicked hearts. And we spoke about another day, thousands of years later, when men who were made righteous by the grace of God and the blood of Christ were given new tongues and a spirit to shout the mighty works of God. The nations were born in sin, and men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation will be saved by grace. But how do we get there? How do we get from hopeless isolation to sweet redemption? That's what this week is about. This week, we'll trace the story from the scattering of the nations to the rescue of the nations. And we don't have to look far because a seed of hope is planted right where we left off, okay? Right on the heels of scattered Babel. So I want everybody to open your Bible to Genesis eleven eight. okay? So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So this is where we left off, right? A people is scattered and isolated. And in a moment, like lightning, they're alone, really, truly Alone. They cannot speak to their best friends or their neighbors. They cannot listen to comforting words or understand happy music or get sage advice. They're lost and they're lonely, without hope, without community, without connection. And so they leave, slowly migrating to the furthest ends of the earth, searching for home. But that's only the beginning of the story now if you if you look just a bit further just just a touch further you'll see the hope the planted seed of hope turn to genesis 12:1 now the lord said to abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that i will show you and i will make of you a great nation And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right there. Now, we're only glancing at this text, but I want to quickly take note of two things. First, we are hardly given a moment to swallow the truly tragic consequences of the tower. We have barely a moment to consider the isolated nations of men scattered without hope when the camera moves to Abraham. Think about that. How many events must have unfolded between the tower and the life of Abram? But this transition is important. And the author of the Pentateuch is throwing a massive spotlight on the hope of the nations just as soon as he possibly can. It's like he's saying, but look, there's hope. Don't despair. Take note of that. Not a moment is wasted between the dark storm and the light that shines through the shadows. And take a closer look for just a moment at the promise itself. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in in you, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From you, ancient Abraham, I'm going to make a nation. From you, one nation. But through that nation, every nation will be blessed. This promise, this blessing... The hope of the nations will come from one nation. From one people will come the hope of every people. From one family will come the hope of every family. All right, we've got to keep moving because we've got a lot of ground cover. So I need you to turn to Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live." And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Again, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but we had to stop because this is a sweet song. And this sweet song is a prophecy. So let's stop for a moment and scan the landscape. We've passed over a lot of history Since the call of Abraham. But the promise hasn't changed. From one man, a nation has arisen just like promised. And every moment of that nation's history has been building to the birth of the son of David. David, the great warrior poet king, died a long time ago. But over and over again for hundreds of years, prophets have whispered of hope in a better David. A spotless David who would rescue the scattered nation of Israel and bless all the nations of the earth, just like the promise. And this slave song is a picture of that hope. Read with me again. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is an appeal to the brokenhearted and to the hungry and to the lost and to the poor. Just... Like that glimpse of hope we caught at the call of Abram, this song looks to the nations and calls them to return to the Lord. They are not lost any longer. Hope, a great rescue is on the way. Come thirsty, come to the living water. Come hungry, dine on the broken body. You're wasting your time and your money on stuff that doesn't matter. Can you hear Jesus in this moment? Can you hear him speaking with the woman at the well? If you asked me, I'd give you living water and you'd never be thirsty again. Isaiah calls out to the broken and the needy and the poor, and he calls them to listen to this message of hope that their souls may live because a covenant is coming. And if we keep reading, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation. They did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord, your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. The son of David, the better David, will come and he will be a witness to the peoples. Did you catch it? To the peoples. This is a message to the peoples who were once a people. This is a message to the nations. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. That's it. The history of the people of Israel, the sons of Abram, have led to this point, to the son of David. And from the first words of the promise of Abraham, we've wondered how. How will the nations be blessed through Abraham? Here we see that the story is unfolding that the fog is clearing and we're beginning to see an answer. The covenant, a new covenant, by which the lost nations bear the love of the Son of David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The nations who were scattered by the hand of God, who were struck because of their sin, needn't fear the wrath of God any longer. These nations, lost without hope, may be found again in repentance. Behold, nations, a new covenant. Seek the Lord again. Call upon the Lord again, nations, and forsake your rebellion. Return to the Lord because a compassionate Father awaits. Return to God because He pardons. This is a sweet song of hope, sung to the lost and the weary and the broken throughout the nations. It's beautiful, and I'd love to keep dwelling on it, but we've got to keep moving, because today we're going to read two short stories. Okay, These are both parables that Jesus himself tells his followers and his people. The people of Israel, the sons of Abraham. Now, before we begin reading these stories, I want to give a bit of context. The people of Israel, especially the religious people of Israel, are proud. I mean, everybody is proud, but these guys really do think they're the bee's knees. Which, I did some research, actually, on the bee's knees, and apparently the parallel phrase to the bee's knees is the cat's pajamas. Back in England in, like, the turn of the century. So... If I throw that in the next next sermon, just be prepared. So, religious Jews at the time of Christ believed that they were a superior race. Blessed sons of Abraham, unique among creation. They believed that they were innately better than all the other nations whom they called the Gentiles. They believed that God loved them exclusively. And many believed that God was going to send a king who would wipe away their enemies and force the Gentiles to become their servants. By virtue of Abraham's blood pumping through their veins, they believed that they had earned a place at the great table, the great kingdom feast after the end of all things. It was their right, because they were who they were. Not because they loved God or because they set their hope in the coming Son of David to rescue them from their sins, but because they were worth saving, because they were valuable, because they were unique. Now it's important to note that this pride had sharp edges. They would be seated at the great table, they believed. They would inherit all things, they believed. Because they thought themselves worth saving, but not the others. The other nations, those sinners, they were not worth saving. That's what they thought about the nations. These men did not have a special relationship with God. These men were worthless. These men and women would die as enemies of God because they hadn't followed God's law. They weren't righteous and they didn't have Abraham's blood pumping through their veins. I want you to see a connection here. These men correlated their genes, their blood, their religious ceremonies with loving God and following Him and earning His favor. And they knew that the other nations didn't have these genes and this blood and these religious ceremonies and this law. They were Gentiles, and as such, they weren't worth saving so Jesus tells a series of stories and we're going to look at them. Turn to Luke 14:12. Luke 14:12. Jesus said to the man who had invited him, "When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will Eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and must go out to see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servants came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind." And the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So let's start at the beginning and work our way through. Jesus has been invited to someone's house to eat. Now, we don't know a whole lot about everyone who is present, but we do know that he was invited by a ruler of the Pharisees, and that everyone around Jesus was watching him carefully. So, the Pharisees, if you didn't know, are the most religious of religious Israel. They practice the ceremonies, they observe the law, they even create stricter regulations and rules beyond the law just to be safe, and they're proud. Man, oh man, are they proud. So it may not surprise you that the Pharisees hated Jesus. This man ate with sinners? This man healed on the Sabbath? This man associates with the low and the poor and the sick and he ignores our rules and he claims to know and love God? Well, one of these guys, a ruler among them, invited Jesus over to his house. And Jesus is surrounded by watchers. Remember that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus and most of the Pharisees who watched Jesus are watching him in order to catch him breaking a law or blaspheming or anything that could get him turned over to the Romans. So these aren't likely friendly watchers. Think vultures. And this is the context within which Jesus tells this story about the great banquet. And what does he say? The truly just, the truly righteous man will invite the poor, the needy, the crippled, the lame to his banquet. Listen again. Jesus said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Think about that. What characterizes the just man who will be repaid at the resurrection? His table is surrounded by hungry hands and weak knees, by poor and crippled men. The just man aids the weak, the broken, the needy. Keep reading. A wealthy man throws a great feast, and he invites all those with whom he has associated. One man says, sorry, bro, I just bought a house. Another man says, sorry, bro, I just bought a tractor. Another man says, sorry, bro, I just got married. Now, before we keep reading, notice that Jesus is responding to a man's assumptions that he will be present at the great kingdom feast. So, this story isn't just thrown out as a moral lesson. This story is a response to men who assume they'll have premium seats at the great feast in the new kingdom. And what does Jesus suggest? You're entirely too occupied with the things of this world to have a seat at my feast. You're self sufficient, you're busy. You spend your time and money and effort on things that you think will make you happy, but don't fool yourself. Those things are not me. This is the king speaking. Have you thought about that? This is the king of the new kingdom speaking. The prince of New Jerusalem. This is the guy who issues the invitations. And he looks into the eyes of the rulers of the Pharisees and he says, you're too busy with your stuff to bother attending kingdom feasts. And how does he know? Because the invitation to dine at the table was issued a long time ago. The people of Israel has been invited to love God and serve him for thousands of years. But their hearts were hard, idolatrous, occupied with their stuff. So, the man who prepared a great feast tells his st- servants to hit the streets, invite the poor, the needy, the crippled, society's outcasts. Tell them to come and enjoy this feast. And go out to the highways and the outer margins of the city and tell everyone to come, feast with me. Every seat must be filled. The question we asked before about the rescue of the nations how? That's the answer. God lifts up the humble. God seeks the broken, the needy, the crippled, and the lame, the outcasts of the world. Be honest, you are among them. These are the sons of God who will be rescued and redeemed. This is the nature of the citizens of the new kingdom. God says, Go get the broken, get the weak, get the burdens. God says, Go get the hurting, get the addicted at the isolated and the lonely. There's room for these at my great kingdom feast. That's sort of the point of this story. Invitations to the great kingdom feast will not be issued based on net worth or social status. Invitations to the great kingdom feast are not issued to highlight the worth of the invited. Invitations to the great kingdom feast will be issued to highlight the worth of the great benevolent king of Jerusalem. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now we're ready, I think, to read the second story. Flip to Luke 15 and find the prodigal son narrative. Jesus said, There was a man Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he who devoured your property and prostitutes with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So look, there's so much here, and we don't have time to look at everything. But let me just begin by saying that this story is a stunning display of the Father's love, and you should meditate on it this week. I mean, what a father! Right? So let's work through it, and I want you to pay particular attention to how the Father responds to To his wayward son. Okay, so the son approaches his father and says, I'd rather not wait for you to die to have your stuff. So can I have it now? And we've got to be honest, that's what he's saying. My share that is coming to me, dot, 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 when you die. Now, before we just laugh, at the staggering display of heartlessness and cruelty that is this request. I want you to think about two things. First, this story is being told by Jesus. God is telling this story. The God who was there when man rebelled against him. The God who was there when their hearts were corrupted. The God who was there at the first theft... At the first murder, at the first war, God is telling this story. Second, He's telling this story to men who preferred His stuff. He's telling this story to men who preferred creation over Creator. We are this Son. Every one of us. And when you sin... You look at a kind father and you say, give me your stuff and leave me alone. So yes, there's a high degree of audacity in this son's request. But we are this son. And that audacity is only a glimpse of the audacity that is embodied in our sin. So this son leaves with half his dad's stuff. He leaves... And he wastes it all, right? Reckless living means probably what you think it means. He didn't make an unwise investment in the stock market. He wasted it. And if his brother's read is accurate, he wasted it on drink and sex. Until it's gone. And when he's got nothing else, everything goes bad. Not just bad, salivating at pig slop kind of bad. Truly, he is now broken and hungry and poor. If you have time this week, Google pigs and Jews. Look, this is not just a bad day, right? This is not just you know, serving at 7-Eleven and hungry at his break time. This is the worst of the worst possible situations he could find himself in. But then he remembers his father. My father's servants stay warm and eat well. I'll go back to my father and I'll tell him I'm not worthy to be his son and I'll ask him to treat me like a servant. And he starts walking back home. Now, I think this is the best part of the story. The father sees the son walking toward him from a long way off, and he runs. Think about it. Old man running down the street towards his beaten up, broken, threadbare, sickly son. And before the son even has the opportunity to beg forgiveness... Before he has a chance to weep and grovel, the father throws his arms around him and gives him a big kiss. It's always helpful for me to ask the question, did this have to be here? No. It didn't. God doesn't have to give us that detail, but he does, right? Picture. Big window into the character of God. Kind father. Anyways. As soon as, the father, as, as soon as the son repents, actually he cuts him off, if you notice from the story. He doesn't even get to the third sentence of his you know, prefabricated apology. He cuts him off. He says, robe, ring, shoes, break out the choice steaks and the finest wine. My son was dead and he's alive again. My son was lost and now he's found. So both stories end with a great feast. And seated at the table, in both stories, are broken, weak men. Seated at the table are men who looked at a kind father and said, I'd rather have your stuff, and then things went bad. The great kingdom table is surrounded like, by men like these, needy men who have failed, who have been broken by the world. The great kingdom table is surrounded by men who look to a kind father and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And that, that's why the nations have hope. The nations right now are scattered, isolated, alone. They are right now broken by this world and crippled and made lame. The nations may have caught glimpses of the character and nature of God, but they haven't seen Him yet. Listen to me for a moment. They are ready. The poor and broken and needy and desperate of this world have Hope because they've been granted an invitation to the table. The weak and despised and addicted of the nations have hope because they've been granted an invitation. The nations are the prodigal son. And we sh- should we choose to obediently broadcast that invitation to the nations, these shall wear the new robe of Christ's righteousness. And the ring of the sons and daughters of God, and they shall dine at the great kingdom feast. That's the nature of our message. That's the content of the invitation. As the masters are drafting invitations for the poor and the sick and the needy, and send them out and say, Go hand this to these people. That's the content. That's what's inside. Remember Isaiah 55? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy me? Look, you should see this handwritten on a paper invitation that's handed a poor, crippled, lame man in the street. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food at the master's table. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you poor, broken. I will make with you wayward son an everlasting covenant, a steadfast, sure love for David. That's the hope planted at the call of Abraham. That's the hope, that's the invitation. We we carry that invitation to the margins, to the poor and the broken and the hungry. And that's the portrait we carry with us. The portrait of the good news of Christ's rescue and a great kingdom feast. Hungry, come feast at the table. Thirsty, drink of the living waters. The nations, right now, are invited to the table. And we are the servants who carry those invitations. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. We are sent out to look into the eyes of broken sons and daughters, lost in sin, hopeless in rebellion, and to sing songs of hope and redemption. Seek the Lord, poor sister. Call upon Him, because He is near. Forsake your sin, broken brother. Return to the Lord, because compassion awaits. Our God will abundantly pardon. That's the invitation. Come, nations, back to the Lord. And God will replace your threadbare garments with the robe of Christ's righteousness. He will place a ring on your finger and you will sit at the great kingdom feast. That's our scenario. We've been handed armfuls. Just armfuls. Think that mouse in the... the, the uh, which, what, what's the movie? Gus Gus. Think Gus Gus. with like the cheese piled up to his chin. You got armfuls of invitations to the great kingdom feast. And we've been told to fill every seat with the poor and the hungry and the broken. And we've got a lot of work to do. So let's go to the highways and the hedges to the nations.